Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein Agogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R for an hour of science. We have a big show ahead of you in the studio with me live is Dr. Jen. Good morning, ma'am. <gasps> Good morning, Dr. Shane. I am so excited because I've come into Triple R, the actual, you know, brick building of Triple R twice this week, having not been here for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of days. And it's just, it's just so nice to be here. Yeah, it's great. This has been my sanctuary throughout the entire pandemic. It's the only place I've been able to go other than the supermarket. Yeah, and you haven't had us pesky co-hosts coming and annoying you and potentially <laughs> well, infecting you with COVID, yeah, so it's I been can, perfect, I right? can say, though, it's a little bit lonely, you know, when you're, you're by yourself. But, um, but it's been good. We've had everyone on Zoom and everything. So, And speaking yeah. of Zoom, we do have uh, Ewan is is home. Good morning, Ewan. G'day. How you going? Oh, I'm all right. It's, it's a beautiful sunny day out there, so I'm looking forward to getting amongst it. Yeah, no, it's a great day. And uh, travelling back in time a little bit to Saturday evening, we've got Gracie on the line from Texas. How are you going, Gracie? Yes, good. How are you? I'm great. Um, I am uh, had a PCR yesterday, clear out of ISO. I'm back. I'm back. Never got sick, baby. (laughs) That's the like the gift that keeps on giving when you thought you had COVID and then you find out you don't have COVID. Yeah, although you know when you you kind of just because you're getting old and you start to feel tired and crappy in the mornings, there's no excuse now. (laughs) Speak speak for yourself, Shane. I don't know anything about getting (laughs) old or feeling tired. I thought maybe there was a reason for it, but no, (laughs) it's just lack of fitness, poor diet, uh, working too hard, not not being on a holiday in a very long time. Yeah, all the things, all the things, all the things. um, Folks, we uh, have a lot on today, so we're going to. Get straight into some news. Uh, Gracie, we might start with you all the way from Texas. What do you got for us? Yes. So I'm going to talk about mosquitoes. So there's a mosquito species that has invaded North America, um, invaded North America back in 2013 was the first reported case. And they're known to spread diseases like yellow fever, dengue, and Zika. And so there was a pilot program that was started in Florida last year to use genetically modified mosquitoes as pest control. So basically what they do is the male mosquitoes are engineered by a biotech company that carry genes that whenever they breed, they don't allow the daughter or the female mosquitoes to survive. Mm. Um, I don't know if you know this, only only the female mosquitoes actually bite. Yep. So basically only the male mosquitoes are surviving. I um, actually didn't know that embarrassingly before I, <laughs> I looked at the story. Um, I did not know that. So I learned something new from doing this story. Um, but right now, Florida and California governments are considering whether to allow these mosquitoes to be released into the wild. Um, so there's going to be a vote. And if it's approved, there could be t- uh, 2.5 billion of these released by April 2024. Wow. So we'll see how it goes. That's full on, isn't it? And uh, what were you saying, Dr. Jen, that the males do bite plants? Yeah, the males the males bite plants. So we can't say they don't bite at all. It's just that they don't bother us. They don't so, bother us. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if that will mean the complete collapse of the mosquito group, you know, in Florida. <laughs> like, will we have to import yeah, other mosquitoes was, later? Yes, I was thinking about that too because then obviously if you eliminate all the females, eventually there's going to come a point mm. where they can't breed, right? And so I'm not sure exactly what their solution was to that. When you yeah. paused just then, Shane, looking for the word, I thought you were about to say, you know, like social scene or something, you know, let's feel sorry for all these mosquitoes who aren't <laughs> going to be having fun anymore. Well, I just, you know, for me it's always this thing of the circle of life because I saw this cartoon a few years back and it taught me some stuff and whenever you pull out one species, I get worried. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Dr. Ewan's got feelings about that. Thanks, Gracie. Dr. Dr. Ewan, what do you got for us? Uh, Look, I might talk about some animals that have probably got, uh, I think, uh, more popular, shall we say, than mosquitoes. Um, And there is a really interesting study that came out in Current Biology uh, um, that's been reported on this week. Um, And we know that, of course, we've just seen the release of the IPCC report, and it's terribly depressing, as we all expected. Um, and also, it's really important to remember that this year we're also going to see uh, COP15, which is actually about um, biodiversity. So there's equivalent um, biodiversity COPs and there's also climate ones as well. And this is basically going to sort of lay the foundation, if you like, for you know how we conserve biodiversity and live more sustainably for the coming decade and so on and so forth. But I think what's really interesting is um, that 
regularly myself but also others are making the point that to address what I would argue are the two biggest uh, global crises that we have, which is the climate change crisis and the biodiversity crisis, extinction crisis, we really need to look at them together and um, basically try and find solutions for them together because they both affect each other. And so this really interesting paper that came out in Current Biology was essentially looking at reviewing studies around the world and seeing essentially what the role of um, large animals are in affecting climate in a range of different ways. And they looked at three main ways, affecting carbon stocks, affecting albedo, which is basically um, reflectance of um, solar radi radiation um, back, back away from Earth, and also fire regimes. And what they've shown in different systems, whether it's rhinoceros, whether it's whales, whether it's bison, that these large animals actually do have a really massive role to play in helping to basically address climate change. Um, you know, so an example of that, of course, would be whales. And I know Dr. Vanessa Barocca was on the show mm. a couple of weeks ago. Whales do a lot of poo in the ocean. That fertilises phytoplankton. And as an example, it's estimated that phytoplankton themselves capture about 37 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide each year. So just get your head around that number. It's a lot. It's a lot. How um, many zeros? Also, I want to know how many zeros huh? that is. It's a lot of zeros. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shane will, will work that out for us while I keep talking. Yeah, it's nine. Um, nine. 37 with nine zeros. <laughs> Thank you, Dr Shane. There you go. Um, but they also release potentially aerosols, which seeds clouds, which can also help to reduce climate change. In the case of things like rhinoceros um, and large other mammals, um, you know, uh, elephants and so forth, they break up um, the vegetation and graze in the vegetation. That can help to reduce um, fire regimes because there's less, basically, vegetation building up. They also fertilise um, that vegetation. They eat vegetation, comes out the other end. That fertilises that vegetation. It also helps to capture carbon um, in, in the soils. So that's really important. And the albedo one, is, is um, that's really interesting. So they have shown that in areas where you might have these large mammals, rather than having really thick, um, I guess, complex areas of vegetation, these large mammals would sort of break it up and you have gaps in the vegetation. And that means you have more snow and more reflectance, which again can potentially help um, push, yep. you know, that radiation away. So you know, I think obviously we hear a lot of doom and gloom stories about climate change and biodiversity, and a lot of them come from me. I apologise, <laughs> but I think I think this is again. It's I guess it's just hope, right? That you know we can actually have these win wins where if we can bring these animals back and conserve them, which is beneficial for the species, it can also help address these really big global issues that we have. So mm -hmm. I think all in all, it's 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 a good news story and shows the potential of what we could do. Yeah, and, no, great and the circle stuff. of life, Dr. Shane. Well. It, you know, we've talked about this a million times, but the idea that there's a lot of connectivity on this planet, believe it or not, and if we, the more we understand it, the more we can not just sort of take care of it, but also utilize it for our own benefit. Yeah, and yeah. and when I I don't mean mine the crap out of it, I mean utilize it for the benefit of the entire planet in a way that's effective and manageable. And that's exactly what you're talking about, you and as you know managing that. And uh, we, I, I'm glad you got to the albedo bit at the end because I was thinking, how the hell? Do these animals change the reflectivity <laughs> of the planet? Um, because that's that's a big deal. That's a very big deal. Yeah, it is. And if you yeah, can change that, particularly in those obviously those Arctic regions where we know we've got really big problems with with you know um, what's happening with the, with the snow and the ice. So yeah. yeah. And yeah. Until, up until this moment, I was all for putting big mirrors in space, but now let's go to the bison. <laughs> let's do it. Sounds great. They could carry mirrors on their backs, couldn't they? Mirrors on the back of bison. Yeah. Double up. Jen, what have you got for us in terms of news? Uh, so when I was so, so lucky to be in Antarctica at the end of 2019 before the world changed quite drastically, yeah. um, all over the ship that I was on, there were these amazing photos uh, of Sir Ernest Shackleton's endurance voyage. So just really unbelievable images that were taken by the endurance's photographer, Frank mm. Hurley. Because I don't know, you sort of think it was a really long time ago, yet there were these really high quality yeah. images all over the place. So the story of the endurance, if people don't know, it left South Georgia on the 5th of December 1914 um, headed to Antarctica with a plan to establish a base on the Weddell Sea coast and then um, for the uh, members of the crew to keep going on the first land crossing mm. of Antarctica. So it was a really quite a big expedition that they had planned um, but as probably everyone knows things didn't go to plan so by mid-January the ship was completely stuck in pack ice. Yep. Um, they spent nine months living in the ship 
that, that couldn't move, that was completely stuck. Then they decamped onto the ice, so they took food and books and clothes and fortunately some life rafts with them, moved onto the ice, hoping that eventually the ice would move and they'd be able to keep going. Um, but, of course, it didn't, so almost a year after they'd set out, the endurance sank. Yep. The crew then kept camping on the ice for a while. Eventually they managed to use these lifeboats to sail to nearby Elephant Island and then in this epic tale of leadership that many of us have heard about, Shackleton and five others sailed 1,300 kilometres in this tiny little boat with no, no cover, so a completely open lifeboat, mm. and they managed to organise the rescue of every other crew member. So, you know, the, the, the expedition failed ostensibly, but it's just this incredible tale mm. of luck and grit and perseverance and leadership that um, nobody died. Endurance. Crew. Endurance, exactly. <laughs> so this is a big part of Antarctic folklore. Mm. People love the story. Shackleton is held up, you know, with incredibly high regard of how he managed to keep morale high for all of these months in terrible, terrible conditions. If, and if only we just, had the boat. Exactly. Thank yeah, you, Dr. Shane. To be part so of the story. why is all of this news? Because as I'm guessing everyone's heard, this week they actually managed to find the endurance, um, which you sort of think, hang on, surely that can't be that hard. It must have been pretty obvious. But, of course, it wasn't. Terrible mm. conditions, under yep. ice, freezing cold, very difficult. I mean, the reason that people have known where to look is because the ship's captain um, kept really, really good records and they ended up – so Frank Worsley was the captain and they ended up finding the ship only four miles south of the location where he recorded that it sank, which is pretty impressive, pretty four, accurate. Four miles of ocean, pitch yeah. dark. How deep? Kilometre deep? Or uh, they found it in 3,000, um, 3,008 metres. Wow, so, so three kilometres. That, yeah. That's... You know, no, I'm not going to say needle in a haystack, hard. but it's certainly not going to be easy. Yeah, so there was another um, there was another attempt to find it three years ago, and they failed. Yep. So, you know, this wasn't easy. Um, but, yeah, 107 years after it sank, we've now got this incredible um, footage mm. of it, and it's just in unbelievably good it's condition. It's pristine. Yeah, because yeah. the whole thing is there are cold. no wood-boring yeah. organisms that yep. live in water that cold. So it's, you know, it's upright. It's still largely intact. It just looks absolutely beautiful. Um in this incredibly difficult search. And uh, the thing that I like best is that it's protected by the Antarctic Treaty. So mm. what that means is no one's going to touch it. So they've, they've surveyed it, they've filmed it, but they are leaving it there. It's not going to be brought up and put in a museum. It's not going to be subjected to any of the things we might think of in the capitalist society yeah, we live yeah. in. Um, it's just going to be left there. And Ewan and I were having a chat about it, about you know, can we justify the expense of an expedition like this when Antarctica itself needs yep, so, much so much money, money. to yep. be conserved? And I've sort of thought about this long and hard. And I guess the reason I'm not anti what's been done personally is because I just think this is an incredible story that's going to engage the hearts and minds of so many people and it already has because of this whole kind of folklore yep. and if it brings in if the fact that we've got this footage of this ship that really is as good as the Titanic mm. you know, if that's going to yeah, bring yeah. a whole new audience and say oh my god Shackleton he survived he yeah. managed to look after his crew wow Antarctica is amazing maybe right. we should protect it I come on James Cameron okay. get the film going yes yeah, seriously yeah. so you know I, I think if this in reinvigorates people People's fascination with Antarctica, and you know, it was funded by a private yeah. philanthropist. It's not like it's using government money. I kind of think it's okay. And look, I'm with you, Jen. If there was five ships in that fleet, and someone said we've got to go and find the other four, I'd say no. Yeah, spend great. that money on Antarctica. But yeah, one will will inspire so many yeah. in interest in what happened, where it was, why Antarctica is important, in ways that you know. To be frank, many of us scientists don't do that well. And and we've lost a bit of interest there, I think. Mm. So, you know, I think if this is something that brings that back to life a bit, great. Yeah, and, agreed. You know, and the footage is just so stunning because, you know, Antarctic water is completely clear. So yeah. you're just looking at this ship that you can't imagine that it sunk over 100 with, years ago. With the greatest degree of envy, I will say, take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> Un understood, Dr. Shane. I shan't gloat. Yeah, no, look, I, no, nothing made me happier than when I heard that you were going down there. I thought of all the people I know that would be able to communicate the, the wonders of that place you were at. So I was very glad to hear that Dr. you went Shane. to Antarctica and extremely envious. But, um, you know, that's, uh, that's another story. Folks, uh, we're going to take a break uh, for some tunes. When we come back, though, we'll be speaking with our first guest for today. And I think uh, Dr. Jen's going to do a lot of the questioning on this one because it's it's an interview as 
well, you know, we're a couple of days late, but it was International Women's Day a few days back. was. And the role of um, women in research is incredibly important, and we're going to be having a bit of a, a chat about that in a few moments. So hang in there. Uh, you're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. On the line with us now is Professor Madhu Baskaran, the co-leader of the Functional Materials and Microsystems Group and the Node Director and Chief Investigator of the ARC Center of Excellence for Transformative Meta-Optical Systems. That's an area I'm particularly interested in. It's very cool. But also the co-chair of Women in STEM Australia, and she's from the School of Engineering at RMIT University. Madhu, did I miss anything? No. <laughs> cool. no I know, I know. That, that's quite a few hats over. Oh, look, it's great. Um, it's, it's funny, uh, sometimes, especially when we have clinicians on, I, I, I have a rule where I read every third line. Otherwise, yeah, you it can't gets, read them all. gets out of control. But you've got so many great <laughs> things going on. Now, um, this interview is part of um, our sort of discussions we had last week and so forth around International Women's um, Day. And so what I want to sort of do there is hand over to, to Jen to conduct this interview. And if we get into, if we have time to talk about some of your optical work, um, I'll do that at the very end. But if you're cool with that, I'll, I'll hand over to Jen. Because last year for International Women's Day, I didn't even come into the studio. No, uh, you remember we, didn't, we didn't let you in, Shane. Yeah. But we're, being, we're being more inclusive this year. <laughs> I think, well, I don't think it, it fell on a Sunday, I think, last year. So it might have been, I think. Is that right? I think. Oh yeah, yeah, I did. It yeah, did. yeah. So yeah, I just right. I just vacated the premises appropriately. Um, but this year I figured maybe we'll do it halfway because it wasn't on a Sunday. So that's all right. But Jen, over to you. Well, Madhu, I think we do need to let Shane ask you a little bit about your research. So we will be generous and allow that to happen. But I'd just like to uh, start by asking you, certainly if Twitter's anything to go by, many women actually have really mixed feelings about celebrating days like International Women's Day. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Are you a fan? Do you think it's a problem what, what do you think i love the fact you can shine the light on all the i mean you, it's it's too pronged right you can use the day to celebrate how far we have come uh, no matter how slow that progress is and how frustrating it can be uh, but for me it's also a day to shine the light on the problems and the challenges which women face and uh, if we don't have that then you know what is the solution i guess mm. so it's probably for me. It's a bit of both. It's it's probably more to shine the light on what needs to be done and what are the solutions going forward, as opposed to just celebrating women on that one singular day and then forgetting about it for the rest of the year. Yeah, it's like my mother always said growing up. She didn't want us to celebrate Mother's Day because she just wanted us to be really nice to her every day of the year rather than just once. But no, look, I feel the same way. I think we need those days, but we have to be very clear that it's not about pretending there aren't problems. So, Madhu, I'd love to hear about your role as co-chair of the Women in STEM Australia organisation, which does it usually get shortened to WISER? Is that what, is that what Women in STEM Yes, WISER, that's right. Yeah. Yes. So tell us about your role as co-chair of WISER. Who, who is this organisation? What's your role? What what is Wiser trying to achieve? So Wiser was actually set up back in 2014, uh, and was uh, I was on the inaugural board of directors. I've been involved in Wiser since 2014, but Women in STEM Australia initially was called Women in Science Australia, and then we expanded the science to include STEM, which is uh, obviously much more inclusive. Uh, now the idea behind that was uh, it was started way before you know we had gender equity on the agenda for most people. So it is almost like, uh, you know, to make sure that women had a voice, we could lobby and actively call for, you know, policy changes to make sure that our concerns are being heard and challenged. Uh, it was, it's a bit different because it's not just talking about, you know, women in academia, it's talking about women across multiple sectors. So the yep. entire aim is to make sure that we connect women across the different sectors, which is government, academia, industry, education, and the other sectors where STEM professionals work. But it's also the girls in STEM aspects. So it's not just uh, women who have established into STEM careers, but also making sure that we keep that education and the girls in STEM uh, aspect of it very alive and making sure that we you know, don't have a pipeline issue going forward, hopefully. Yeah. And uh, But for us, I guess, obviously things have changed. In the last seven years, we've seen uh, gender equity and diversity, you know, becoming a much more uh, widespread topic. A lot more people have more awareness now. Uh, we're talking now solutions rather than just repeatedly talking about the challenges. Mm. Uh, so I took over as co-chair just at the end of last year. So it's a pretty brand new role for me. But for me, it's uh, I think I'm trying to see if we can extend 
the gender diversity conversations beyond gender you know making sure we consider the intersectionality aspects of it as well so yeah. women i i i feel like we now we kind of tend to band all women together as just women but then we're all different so making sure that intersectional lens comes through is what i'm hoping to achieve yeah that's fantastic and i'd love to hear what do you think have been some of the biggest improvements that you've seen when it comes to gender equity or or our you know some of the more nuanced uh, aspects of equity that you've just mentioned so since 2014, what would you identify as some of the biggest improvements? I'm from academia, and I think as far as academia is concerned, certainly the science and gender equity uh, sage has definitely helped things going forward. So every university now typically has a gender action plan. It's no longer taboo, I think. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of people are more comfortable talking about gender, more comfortable talking about inclusion. Uh, I think it's definitely made it much more easier to talk about flexible work, care or leave, and things like that. Um, the ARC or the Austrian Research Council or the NHMRC, the grant funding bodies as well have, uh, I think they are trying to approach the way in which you take career interruptions into consideration and things like that. I don't think it's an easy solution. And of course, it's it's been a problem for decades and decades, but we're certainly in the right path in terms of trying to fix it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had the decadal plan for women in STEM. Again, that was, a, again, a multi-section, uh, uh, you know, multi-sector approach. And it was nice to see how different sectors approach this problem and how the problem is so different in different sectors as well. So it's, it's, been, it's, it's been good. You know, see, definitely people are much more ab- across this. It's, people are talking about it a lot more. But I firmly believe it's, it's, we need to start moving towards solutions land. It's not about talking about it anymore. Which we are, but uh, probably a lot more slowly than what I thought. We, we, I thought we'll be much further along solutions than we were, but it's, it's definitely slowed down a lot with COVID as well. Yeah, I think we all kind of always like to think that we might be further ahead than we are. But I have to ask, Madhu, if you could wave a magic wand and immediately make one change for all women in STEM M, what would you choose? What would you choose to just immediately change for everybody? You know, are we are we more thinking about the barriers to entry? is the biggest problem or the barriers to retainment and advancement are the biggest problems or is it something completely different? If I could get rid of microaggressions, I would. Honestly, <laughs> I, I, I feel that... I, I honestly feel that's that's sometimes as small as the word sounds and you use the word micro, but it can be quite macro in the in the uh, in the challenges that it presents itself. You know, just it's exhausting to mm-hmm. deal with it. And I feel it plays a bigger part in retention than, you know, people somehow make it out to be the exhaustion you feel in just dealing with it year on year and just the environment in which, you know, you're, you're set up. If you can if I can change that, I would love to change that. Shane, I just think that's the best answer because, mm. you know, it's, it's the culture that we all work in. And, and I think, you know, there's no question that, that um, women experience microaggressions in, in all varieties all the time. But it doesn't mean it wouldn't make the workplace yeah. a better place for everybody. Yeah. If people were just a bit kinder to one another and a bit more inclusive and thoughtful. Yeah. I think, I mean, one of the other things I, you know, just to acknowledge you, Madhu, a little bit there, like, I mean, you, you've gone through the system where, you know, you, you have a distinct disadvantage compared to men in the system. Like with grants, everything, and you know, you're, you know, to be frank, you're absolutely kicking butt. You're a no yeah, director, absolutely. full professor. I mean, people can't see you on screen here, but you know, as far as I can tell, you're 23, 24. <laughs> <laughs> I would <laughs> yeah, have said max yeah, 25. You know, like I think of where I was at your age, and you know, I was doing okay. But you know, you, you've you've absolutely kicked butt. I mean, in, in your role as as director there of, the, of you know, no director of the centre. I mean, what are you doing to sort of to reset some of these things because you know you have such a, a pivotal role in setting just setting the, the terms of engagement and the agenda and, and making sure that the exact sort of behavior that I'm sure you've suffered through for your entire career is not propagated you know often we see this you know it gets propagated again and again general, generationally I mean what are there anything specially you're doing or just being a good human being is that all there is to it I mean what are you up to? I also have a role as the idea director for the center. So mm-hmm. idea being inclusion, diversity, equity, and access. Um, so, and that I think is, uh, is definitely helped. Like we started idea activities for the center even before we started the science planning for the center. So in some ways, you know, we made sure we put equity and diversity right front and center. Uh, we ran a women-only recruitment round last year to make sure that our postdocs 
numbers, the percentage of women in, in the postdocs is, is, is a healthy number. Uh, we have a problem in the sense we our center straddles across optics and engineering, which is probably the two most notoriously worst mm. disciplines as far as women numbers mm. are concerned. So we wanted to make sure that we don't start off the usual way of, you know, opening out all the postdocs to all the men in the world and then filling up everything and then now wondering what do we do for the women. We actually went the other round. We actually held a one round, which was women only, indigenous applications only, made sure we filled as many positions as we did with women, and then we opened out the remaining positions to all genders. So we thought, we have time. We are a seven-year center. Let's just get it right, and let's just approach it the right way it has to be approached. That certainly helped. We, we are now at 35% women for postdocs. Uh, but which certainly healthy. It's double the number as no, what you normally get in optics or in yeah. engineering. Uh, but having said all that, I'm, what I'm really hoping is one day that these kind of equity and diversity and idea and those kind of positions don't sit with women. I actually love to see more men take up those roles and advocate mm-hmm. for change. Uh, I feel we bear the weight of you know more things than we, we should be. Yes, we are role models. Yes, we need to be seen out there. But do we also need to be the change makers? I, I, I don't think so. Not, not, just, not just us. Yep. Here, here. Yep, 100% agree with that. <laughs> and, you know, we're going to have to get you back on to talk about your research because we're going to run out of time before we get to that. And I don't want to do a half-baked job on talking about, especially when we're talking about meta optics, which is a very <laughs> exciting field, of a n- relatively new field of research. But um, just to finish, Madhu, I mean, one of the things I've, I've talked about a couple of times is the idea, and this is similar to, to what you've suggested there in regards to your recruitment of postdocs, that things are so bad in some regards with the Australian Research Council and the NH and MRC with grants and and the, the sort of disproportional number of grants that go to old guys like me, um, or they used to um, when I was still doing it, is is it worth us sort of pushing for the idea of just you know a women only type round or rounds until you know there's an equivalence that we reach because you know that pipeline is so truncated there are so many issues and as much as we as you say we can put all the posters and have all the committees we like but if the money is not simply there early on in the career it seems to me as though we're truncating we're chopping women off early on is, is it i mean is that the sort of thing we really need i mean to do i mean it's just, it's money right i mean we're we're blowing money on on submarines and all sorts of crap at the moment so what about if we actually put into something that had some long-term real change for women for maybe, what, a cycle, 10 years, and then you sort of go back to what we've got, you know, something similar to what we've got now? What are your thoughts? That's a very interesting suggestion because I was I was never a fan of targets. I was never really a fan of women-only recruitment and things like that. But I, what I'm realizing is it makes a difference. Mm. For a lot of people, that's the way they operate. That's the easier way to keep gender front and center of the agenda. Um I know the NHMRC, there were suggestions around making sure you allocate 50% of the budget for women and 50% for men, but I don't know if that's a viable way forward. But what you're suggesting uh, might be a way forward, might eliminate bias, at least in the way, you know, they assess the grants because you're just assessing all women, right? So in that, that way, maybe it's an easier way to eliminate the bias in when you're assessing yeah. track records as opposed to, you know, trying to do it in any other way. Yeah. It, it's a hard one, for sure. Yeah, I only suggest it because I see that as compensation for bad deeds done up till <laughs> now, not necessarily making it easier for women. You're actually just compensating for the issues up to date, you know, like all the, all the restrictions that have been put in place, the difficult these microaggressions everything you've talked about up to this point it's you know and we have to, how long does it take to offset that a decade maybe 15 years that's what we need to do we just need to spend the money on that the arc budget's piddly anyway you know to be fair it's not a lot of money wouldn't take a lot we need more money in the research system for uh, more than anything else right before mm-hmm. we carve out sections Yep. We need actually much more research funding, and that's something which I think everyone's screaming for. Yep. Well, Madhu, we have to go, but uh, we'll get you back to talk about your research. Uh, you have my word Absolutely. on that. I will, um, <laughs> I will contact you, and we'll set something up in the coming months. Thanks so much for talking to us about International Women's Day, and hope you continue to do all the great things you're doing in your centre. And it sounds like a sort of place where most female researchers would love to, would love to be placed, given your leadership there. Thanks so much for chatting to us on Einstein Go Go. Thank you, Shane, and thank you, Jen. Thanks so much. Folks, that was Professor Madhu Baskaran from the, uh, well, she's the co-chair of Women in STEM Australia and the Node Director and Chief Investigator of the ARC Centre of Excellence for Transformative Meta-Optical Systems at RMIT University. We're going to take a break for some important stations and uh, station announcements, and we'll be back in just a moment, Gracie and Ewan will be back to talk about some cool science from all over the world. Triple R.
Yeah, welcome back, people. You're listening to Einstein the Go Go. I'm in the studio. Dr. Jen's in the studio. Woo-hoo! Ewan's on the. <laughs> you can hear Dr. Jen in the studio. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> I can't help it. Ewan's on Zoom. Uh, couldn't handle being in the car with Dr. Jen. So oh, <laughs> that's harsh. Yeah, he drives like a maniac, Ewan. And uh, we've got Gracie uh, from Texas who's about to tell us, tell us all about which animals would survive an apocalypse. Do you think we should be talking about this, Gracie, really, given what's going we got It's all happening here. It's biblical in Australia. <laughs> like, hang on. Round up some I, animals I turned, on your I turned Gracie off. I couldn't even hear her. Sorry, Gracie. Go for it. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about creatures most likely to survive an apocalypse. This was supposed to be a top three list, but I got kind of carried away there, five. Uh, so I'm going to start <laughs> with five, and then I'm going to go up to one. Um, and so does anyone want to take any guesses at what animals I have on this list first? Uh, it's going to be uh, tardigrades and cockroaches. Yeah, that'd be my guess too. Yeah. Probably, yeah, you're, you're probably, both right. It's so far. Probably bloody what about, humans. What about rats? <laughs> I don't have rats. That would have been a good one uh, though. I think ants might be in there. Yeah. Ants, I, ants almost made it to the list. Ooh. They're really close. Yeah. What about spiders? Spiders yeah. are not on the list. Yeah, sad. But yeah, so cockroaches were number five. <laughs> Shane's delighted because he doesn't want to live in a world where there's only spiders and him. Yeah, so. yeah, that's right. <laughs> that would be horrible. Yeah. Um, yeah, so five is cockroaches. Um, and I didn't know this, but the primary reason that cockroaches and a lot of other types of insects are so resistant to radiation is that their cells don't divide that much between their molting cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so their cells are more susceptible to damage uh, by ionizing radiation when they're dividing. And so cockroaches' cells divide only once each molting cycle, so which is usually about like weekly. Um, And since not all cockroaches would be molting at the same time, a lot of them would be unaffected by some sort of acute burst of radiation. Um, Although, you know, the kind of the lingering effects of the radiation, of course, would probably still be harmful. Um, But otherwise, some species are capable of remaining active for a month without food, which is kind of insane. Um, And then some can actually go without air for 45 minutes, which is also terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, very terrifying. Or, or a really great asset, depending on which way you look at it. Well, if you can put those little cameras, <laughs> yes. little cameras on them, yeah. the little mini cameras on yeah, the cockroaches. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yes, and the reason why cockroaches are kind of at the bottom of my list is that while they do have a much higher radiation resistance than a lot of other animals that we commonly tend to think of, um, and their lethal dose of radiation is probably six to fifteen times that for humans. It's estimated. Um, But they're actually, whenever we think about some other organisms like fruit flies and a certain type of wasp, um, they actually are not that resistant to radiation. So fruit flies can actually take almost 65 times the amount of radiation as a human. Um, And then uh, a species of wasp called uh, Braconidae, I probably completely butchered that, um, can actually take 300 times more radiation than humans. So cockroaches are are not the most radiation resistant insects. Uh, which was surprising to me. Hmm. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, so then, yeah, so that was my five, four, and three. So the five was the cockroaches, four was the fruit flies, three uh, was the bronchonidae wasps, uh, and then I'm going to spend the most time talking about the next two. So two is tardigrades. So whoever said tardigrades, I think it was Shane. Uh, You're correct there. Um, So for people who don't know what tardigrades are, they're little microscopic. They're called water bears, and they're actually kind of cute. Oh, must be glitz even. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yes. And they have eight legs. Um, they've been called the most indestructible animal on Earth. They're about one millimeter long, and they've been found at volcanic vents at the bottom of the ocean. Um, they can survive 20 to 30 years without food or water. They aren't affected by <laughs> extreme temperatures hardly at all. They can even live in space, uh, which yeah. is really cool. And they can actually survive over a, a thousand times the amount of radiation as humans. Um, and there's only one creature, actually, that I found while researching this uh, that is more resistant, but we'll talk about that creature in a minute. Um, so my question was how? How are tardigrades so resistant to radiation? Um, and one person did a study where uh, before it was previously thought that tardigrade DNA was largely scavenged from like other bacterial organisms with a process called horizontal gene transfer. But according to the study in 2016, a group of researchers researchers found that the anti-radiation ability of tardigrades was actually due to a special protein that they have, and they named it DSUP, uh, which stands for damage suppression. So 
D is in dog, and then sub yep. is in suppression, damage suppression, um, which is really cool. Um, so basically, the DSUP proteins embrace the tardigrade DNA, and they kind of envelope it, and they basically shield it from harm due to radiation. It's amazing, Gracie. Can I add something to the tardigrade story? Yes, please. Because I've been sitting on this story since uh, May 2021. <gasps> I always bring I always bring uh, s- sort of news in each week in case one of the team falls off their chair or something, and we need some emergency news. And I've been holding on to this one; it's been in my folder. But it's the study of tardigrade impact survival that was done by the <laughs> University of Kent, and they found that tardigrades can handle an impact of up to 2,970 kilometers per hour and still survive. And let me guess, wow. no tardigrades were harmed in the making no of this tardigra- research. No tardigrades <laughs> fired at below 2,970 kilometres per hour were harmed in this research. Yeah. Those fired slightly faster. Well, anyway, that's history. But uh, isn't that fascinating that these guys can handle that kind of acceleration? Like, that's phenomenal. And pressure. Yeah, they, yeah. Can, they can survive pressure and temperature and radiation, like Racy's saying, none of, none of which is experienced on Earth, like even close. Yeah. So the question is, you know, why do, why even have these abilities if you're not even like anywhere remotely close to needing them? It's uh, it's fascinating. Yep. So anyway, yeah. I just think that um, yeah, that's... those those speed challenges, you know, so it's 825 meters per second. You think about that, folks. <laughs> I can't think about it. It hurts I, my I, head. I walked into a bag that was in the bedroom in the dark this morning at about half a meter per second. Felt like I broke my toe. A tardigrade could hit that at 825 meters and not even feel it. Amazing creatures. Sorry, Gracie. Yes. Yes. No, that's a great addition. I did not know that. Um, so this, the same researcher I was talking about earlier is actually trying to apply this, uh, this protein to humans to see if we could eventually one day be, you know, radiation resistant. So now I want like an impact resistant. Yeah. That's what I want. Gene modification. Now that you said that. So. <laughs> yeah. I'm not playing the chip uh, no. to any, you know, radiation sort of hot, hot zones, but um, the impact stuff could be really, really advantageous for me. I do walk into a lot of stuff. Crash test dummy, Dr. <laughs> <Yes>. Shane. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, so that brings me to my number one, which is a type of bacteria called Deinococcus radiodurans. Um, and scientists actually still have not found the limits of how much radiation <laughs> it can withstand. So the, the, the current threshold is 7,000 times more than a human, but they still don't know for sure. Um, so this was actually first isolated in 1956, from a tin of spoiled meat, wow. um, and they actually they found out <laughs> they found was out it that spam? it can also survive. I was, was going to say was spam, spam, right? right? <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. So, and then they also found out from doing experiments since then that it can survive extreme cold, dehydration, and acid. And in 2020, it survived for three years in space. Wow! Three years. Three years. <laughs> three years in space, um, and. Also, it's found typically in habitats kind of rich in organic materials. So sewage, meat, soil. It's been isolated from medical instruments before, room dust, dried foods. So it could be anywhere. What does it do to us? (laughs) That's a good question. I found (laughs) that it wasn't particularly harmful to humans, which was interesting. What about cockroaches and tardigrades? (laughs) (laughs) Come on, if it's in spam, it's got to be harmful, right? Well, yeah, maybe. That's uh, a good point. Yeah, maybe maybe it's just testing its strength. Yeah. <laughs> Gracie, yeah. that's, a, that's such a great list. I, I mean, you know, I think a lot of people expected cockroaches to be in there. Um, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's other things that I would have expected, you know, to be in there, I suppose, other bacteria and so forth. But to, to hear that there's only one that's super super resistant to all of these issues is pretty fascinating. Yeah, I thought yeah. there'd be a really nasty virus in your list. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't I didn't add any viruses. I didn't uh, look for viruses. I are, should do another episode on that, though. Are they living? There's the age old question <laughs> with a virus, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's a tough one. Thank you, Gracie. It's great to have these lists of things, especially at the moment in Australia, because we've got floods. We've got, I think we've got locusts. We've got, well, or mosquitoes that are like locusts. We've got um, massive pandemic. We've got, um, you know, well, we could say something about certain leaders. We've, we've got all of the all of the, <laughs> the horsemen of the apocalypse going on down here. So it's good to know what will be left when, um, when we're all gone. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Gracie. Folks, we're going to take a break yes. for uh, some important station announcements, and we'll be back in just a moment. Jen's going to do something for us as well. Triple R. 
Uh, you're listening to Einstein and Go Go Folks. I'm Dr. Shane. Gracie has just informed us that number six was jellyfish, and I am really peeved that she didn't include the sixth one because I love a good jellyfish and mortal buggers. You just needed to give her more time, Shane. I know. I don't know. You know me. I'm a stickler. Uh, Dr. Jen, what have you got for us? Well, as you've just beautifully outlaid, Shane, you just gave me a beautiful segue. Um, it, I reckon it feels like a bit of an understatement to say that we're living in quite challenging times at the moment. So, mm. you know, there's a global pandemic, there's war, there's a biodiversity crisis, the floods in Australia, which remind us that climate change hasn't gone away while we've been looking towards the pandemic. (laughs) And so what I spend a lot of time thinking about is the fact that so many of us feel really anxious a lot of the time and very powerless and very confused about whether we as individuals have any power to really do anything to avoid the worst climate outcomes. Because I think we, you know, it's easy to feel that it's really only our governments and, and industry that have any power. And particularly if you happen to live somewhere, not mentioning any names, where you feel like your government doesn't give a stuff, um, mm. you know, it, you can just kind of feel like giving up. So I came across some research, which I really wanted to share with you guys to see what you thought. This is bringing together researchers from the University of Leeds, plus um, a group called C40 Cities that I'd never heard of before. Do you guys know C40 Cities? I've heard of CB40. <laughs> A little bit different. So this is a network of um, mayors from all around the world who have banded together to try and deliver um, action to to tackle the climate crisis. So that sounds pretty good, right? Leaders of cities all around the world. And basically the research question was, um, is avoiding climate total meltdown, essentially, is that only about or is that only going to be achieved by actions by government and industry and that individuals are completely powerless or can citizens and communities actually have some sort of meaningful impact in the here and now? Basically, is it worth us trying to give stuff, essentially? And so I do have to let you know that the research was done using North American and European data, but I still think it's probably meaningful for us. And I guess the whole rationale for this research is to say that, yes, the climate situation is probably worth worse than any of us, you know, dare to admit to ourselves. Um, And we need urgent action now and we need our governments and our businesses to do something because they play the largest role. But do we have any power? And I I really like that as a question. Mm. I think that's really worth asking. And what their analysis came out with was to say that, yes, actually, we have the primary influence over somewhere between 25 and 27% of the emission savings needed by 2030 if we're going to try and avoid complete ecological meltdown. And this is the first time that anyone's tried to quantify this impact and how much of the of the emission reduction in emissions that we have control over. So, I mean, really the, I guess the other way to look at that is if we don't do that part, the rest won't be enough. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so that's you can't their, just leave it out. That's their argument. So their mm. argument is to say that it's not about putting the onus on on ordinary citizens and saying you have to save the world because yes, mm. the seventy three to seventy five percent of what has to happen is still going to be done by governments. Yep. But 25 to 27% is quite a lot. And as you say, if we don't do it, there's a really big gap. And of course, Mm. you know, that's only a minimum estimate as well, because we have a direct impact on the remaining roughly three quarters through who we vote for. So making decisions about who we vote for and how we influence industry is also really important. But because we can make decisions and act really quickly, we don't have to have the slow turning wheels Mm. of government to make changes. We're actually probably the most powerful to at least some degree, at least in the next decade where we have to do a whole lot. Um, And the other really important thing that they've said, which I really like, is to point out that it's the higher income people on the planet who have most of the power. Who would have guessed? 25%. So we can't pass the bar and say, you know, oh, it's this country that's making all the problems or it's this country that's making all the problems. Because it's people like you and I who buy clothes and eat food and drive vehicles. You know, we're the ones who have the problem. So, okay, so that's the main message of this research is to say roughly a quarter we have control over. But then they've come out. The other thing I really liked about this research is that they've come out with six really clear targets for what we all need to do if we want to avoid a climate crisis going as badly as as it currently looks like it will. So everyone take notes because I think it's really easy for us to say, oh, you know, I try and live a good life. I don't drive very often. I I ride my bike. I've cut down on meat. You know, it's really easy for us all to say, I'm doing everything I can. Mm. But I don't know. You guys listen. I, I think that I live a lifestyle which is fairly good environmentally, but I don't do all of this. So listen. So number one is 
we have to reduce clutter and by that they mean that we have to keep all of our electronic products and home appliances for at least seven years. So no new computer every four years, well, no new phone every two to three years or one year, whatever it is, seven years. And this is going to bring about a 3% reduction in emissions if people do this. Can I just say the fact that I've kept my VCRs says I am kicking <laughs> that one out of the park. That is excellent, Dr. Shane. Shane, is, lot... that, is, that, is that beta or VHS? <laughs> Look, I feel a bit ashamed that it's VHS, Ewan, but, um, but still, good question. <laughs> But, you know, seven years is a long time, right? Like, do, yeah. do people hold on to their phones, computers, um, dishwashers, microwave mm. ovens, fridges, washing machines? Yep. Like, some things you hold on to for seven years or more, yep. no worries. But, you know, I have to say, I haven't had the same phone for the last seven years. And, and to be hard, we're fighting industries that make sure exactly. you can't. Exactly. I mean, fridges, yeah, I'm going to keep that thing until it dies or its efficiency level is such that I'm embarrassed by it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But phones, we all yep. know what happens. And computers. Yeah. You know, yep. can't can't yep. update to the latest to the latest yep. software. We're forced. So. But there's a lot of things we can't, you know. VCRs, people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so that's the first one to think about, which I think is a really good thing. The next one is about flights. And, you know, it's really easy to say, I haven't flown anywhere for the last two years. I'm doing really well on this. But yep. if you think to what you were doing pre-2020 or what you might have visions of in future, if we want to reduce um, our emissions sufficiently, then mm. you get one short-haul flight every three years yep. and you get one long-haul flight every eight years. So, do you know, in October 2018, before the pandemic hit, is that the year? 18? 19. 19. 19. I tweeted that I wanted to see every environmentalist and other scientist in the world reducing the number of international flights they took to conferences. So I feel really, your fault. I feel really bad about that now. <laughs> but, you know, it was something that even back then seemed like a very, very smart move. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we could do it. And, yeah. and I think we've demonstrated that we can do it now. Absolutely. Not by choice, but we it. have demonstrated that we can do it. So let's not return to as much as we had before. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But, but again, I would say that a lot of people who think they're generally doing the right thing and generally quite responsible yep. would do more than one local flight in three years and one long-haul flight in eight years. Because yep. that's Absolutely. not that much, right? Yep. Yep. Okay, the next one is you not you won't be surprised is about food. So of course it's about having a largely plant based diet, so yep. reducing meat as much as possible, um, thinking about healthy portions. But of course the biggest one is no waste. Right. So not buying food that you're not going to eat, and yep. of course growing it yourself if you can. So there's a twelve percent reduction in greenhouse gas emissions up for grabs yeah. if we just stop wasting food and eat less meat. And don't buy shit that's prepackaged. Yeah, absolutely. You know, mushrooms in the supermarket, people put them in a bag. Yeah, yeah. Don't buy. In a tub? Plastic, pun it, and then glad wrap over the top. Or worse, bananas wrapped in plastic. Oh, oh yeah. my gosh. <laughs> well, first of all, the supermarkets charge you more. Check the pricing. I've yeah, the pricing that. per kilo is usually more if it's prepackaged. So think right. about that. Yeah. And let me guess, it that extra sense. money is not going to offset the cost of the pollution. <laughs> You're such a comedian, Jim. Yeah, I know Next. I am. Okay, <laughs> number four, you get three new items of clothing per year. That's it. You can buy three items of clothing in any given year. Now, Shane, Again, for my, you and my, I, that's my probably wife fine. would say I'm undercutting <laughs> yeah. big time there. I need to get some new stuff. Yeah. Look, I'm also not into clothes, but yeah. the reality is that for a lot of people, yeah. it's a, yep. and, and particularly now that restrictions are so far reduced, you know, going yeah. shopping is a fun event for a lot of people. For me, yeah. not so much, but I, I'm not judging people that if that's something you find enjoyment with your friends is going shopping, but maybe a bit more window shopping and a bit yeah. less buying stuff. Or go to, go to your op shop. Absolutely, yep. op shops, 100%. Um, number five is, unsurprisingly, if at all possible, don't own your own personal vehicle. Mm. You know, share. If you have to own one. one for, for yeah. emergencies or because you live somewhere where you don't have access to good public transport, then just minimise it as much as possible. So they're not saying you can't own a car. They're just saying be really mindful of yep. if you have to and how you can minimise the impact if you do need to own one. Yeah, and get a, get a car that's efficient and yep. preferably off the grid i mean that's hard at the moment in australia i get that but yep. you know and that's one thing that you know if you're wealthy you can go and get yourself one but if you're not it's tough yep. Yep. yeah yeah absolutely yep um and then the sixth one is 
um, doing something else that will kind of nudge the bigger system. So we were talking before about the fact that, you know, you're, it's impossible not to get a new phone every couple of years because it's simply the system doesn't allow you to keep the same phone. So maybe it's moving to a green energy company, maybe it's moving to a green superannuation fund, maybe it's being more politically active. You know, thinking about the system that is set up to thwart mm. us from mm. being more green yep. and think about how you and your with your temperament, with your skills, with your financial ability, whatever it is, think about how you can nudge that system in yeah. the right direction. Um, and so this, this movement is, was just launched on the 5th of March. Their, their tagline is less stuff, more joy, which I really like. And they're sort of taking a softly, softly approach. They're saying just commit to trying these shifts for a month or for three months or for six months. Trying is enough. You don't have to be perfect. Just start. So they're, they're, they're talking about trying to really rewire the whole narrative around what is desirable in, in our current world that we live in. So have a look. I, I spent quite a lot of time reading about it. I think it's quite legit. It's called Take the Jump. So if you go to takethejump.org, they're on Twitter called um, Take the Jump Now. And it's, yeah, they've just launched this movement. They want people to go on and sign up and say, I'm going to try and do as many mm. of these things as I can. Mm. And I don't know, it's so easy to scoff. We're all so tired and fatigued and cynical. It's easy to say, oh, none of this will make a difference. But you've got to start somewhere, right? Yeah. And, and if we all walk away from this conversation and everyone listening goes, oh, actually, no, you have three pieces of clothing. I'll, I'm going to do buy nothing year or whatever it is. You know, it, everything makes a difference. There is no point in just giving up and saying there's no point. It's yep. We've lost the war. It's all over. Let's try and do some of these things. Yeah, and look, and the sort of thing too that I'd love to see that, in, that exact information you just presented, frankly, as you presented it in, in schools, you yeah, know, teaching absolutely. the next generation yeah. that – you know, look, all, all your parents are idiots and they've screwed this up, but, um, you, you know, like, but you don't have to. And, and, and even if we were to fix everything right now, we still need to have good behaviors going into the future. Now, we're not going to fix everything right now, but, yeah. you know, still that, that generational good behavior is going to be required as the population of the earth increases. And, you know, we can get that information out in, in, into schools in ways that, you know, kids are smart, they get it. You know, they're, yeah. Yeah. they're incentivized because it's their future we're screwing with. So, and I'd it's not like buying less stuff and spending less money and having more yeah, fun yeah. with your friends rather than buying things is is bad for you, right? Like this is all <laughs> leading all towards actually a better, happier, more, healthier life. More, yeah, exactly, yep. healthier life. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Yeah, the Jim. Cha- the, challenge, the challenge is the whole system is set up to, to, to sell more, right? Mm. So we're constantly bombarded with marketing. And it does make you wonder about, you know, we, we know we have policies about health, regulations about what could be marketed but why not something that's sustainability focused as well like buying a phone every two years we don't need it but that the whole system is set up to do that so absolutely we've got to fight it we're going to do the best we can and i think some of these simple measures often the best communication is simple clear communication thank you dr jen for going through that list an excellent list that hopefully people can abide by Gracie, uh, I can see it's getting dark over there in Texas or, the, or you've turned the light out in your whatever room you're in. I'm not sure. But, uh, thanks so much for joining us and doing that fabulous story on, on our world ending. We all appreciate that. It makes us feel feel better. And good to know that tardigrades and, and bacteria are going to survive. Makes me feel better. Thanks, Gracie. Yes, thanks for having me. Good to chat to you too, Ewan. Um, hopefully, uh, we'll have you in the studio next month. That'd be cool. See Look you soon. Jen, great to have you in the studio and to see you again. It's Wonderful been to way be too long. Folks, you've been listening to Einstein the Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and we're going to hand you over to now to the team from Eat It. Uh, great show. If you haven't heard it before, the amazing Cameron's going to talk all about food. See you next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein the Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.